0: Welcome to the HC Insider Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the commodities sector and the people within it. I'm your host, Paul Chapman. Today we're fundamentally talking about the volatility inherent in fuel supply. Managing that volatility, capturing margin, and ensuring physical supply is a crucial element of oil trading globally. It's also a microcosm, an indicative of what's been going on more broadly in the commodity world over the last 30 years. Now, like the rest of the commodities world, leadership within these businesses around the world face the issue of energy transition, and what that means for the type of fuel they'll be supplying in the future, namely hydrocarbons to power, and or even hydrogen. It's this story that we're going to tell over the next two episodes. In the first part, we bring the story up to the present day and the background to why oil majors got out and then back in again into fuel supply, how it's been crucial to the trading house expansion and opportunity, and why fuel retailers have gotten into the midstream and what that means. In the second part, we look at the next two decades. What will happen to those markets with an uncertain demand, a higher cost environment, and a lack of investment, and what we can see so far is the impact of EVs and how retail fuel suppliers will start positioning themselves in the power business. Our guest is Doug Hogg. Doug was the president of Parkland USA, a wholly owned subsidiary of Parkland Corp, a nearly 4 billion business with 3,000 employees, all focused on retail fuels and convenience stores. Jermaine to this topic, during his time at Parkland, Doug and his team built a supply and trading team from scratch, acquired, owned, operated multiple terminals in the Rockies and operated over 500 trucks and 50 branches and distribution centers, supplying over 600 convenience stores, the team going from 120 people to over 3,000 in less than five years. Doug has over 25 years' experience in the energy and technology sectors. Doug is currently on the board of NACS, the National Association of Convenience Stores. He's a chairman at Trucks, a technology company focused in trucking. And he's on the board of directors of BioBlend Renewable Resources. And it's just these topics at the C suite that Doug has faced throughout his career and worked on managing. As always, you can really support the show by leaving a positive review. And I hope you enjoy part one. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul. Excited to be here. So we're talking about managing volatility. In fuel retail, and this is a story that's going to start with uh, gasoline and diesel and, and petrochemicals and going to end talking about a lot of where you put a lot of time as in your career recently in how to manage the EV revolution or at least entrance into the market as well but let's start in I guess the traditional fuel retail space going back i guess to the 1980s which is really the sort of the decade prior to all of the big changes that have swept through this industry can you just give us an understanding of kind of the typical setup in the 1980s you know it was dominated by oil majors producers essentially selling their own product at the forecourt to capture that margin all the way down
1: well that's correct and it and it really had been that way for you know the better part of a hundred years give or take right since the business really first got started and each each producer each refiner had their own brand their own distribution system their own retail chain you know many of them directly operated owned and uh, ran those those retail environments for many decades that all really started started to change in the late 80s and then dramatically changed in the 90s where you saw major refiners and oil companies start to divest their retail businesses outright and that played out over you know, a t- ten to twenty-year period. So the, the business became very independent, if you would, uh, with lots of different owners and operators of those of those branded stations. They might still have the Shell sign or the Exxon sign or the mobile sign or the BP sign, but they weren't obviously you know run any longer by those mm. by those companies. So that played out over a couple decades. Along with that, there was other trends changing the business. Um, certainly, the importance of the convenience store versus just the gas station really started to transform the business where, you know, you had traditional convenience store operators like a 7-Eleven, like a a Wawa who had run, some of them started out as dairy, some of them started out as ice houses, you know, it it kind of, however they got in the convenience space, but they all started to add fuel and then all the fuel operators started to add stores. Mm. Right. So you had that's sort of where the modern what we think of today as a as a convenience store gas station, which people expect to have coffee and, f- you know, in many cases, hot food and fresh food in some cases. And that's, you know, it's really evolved to be as in many cases somewhat as much a restaurant, you know, in a food st- a small food store, small version of grocery even as it is fuel. Right. So that that transition played out over a couple of decades. But and then alongside that, you had the big box retailers decide that they wanted to be in the fuel business too. So you started to see gas pumps outside of many of your grocery stores, whether that be Safeway, Albertsons, to your local chains. And then, of course, you know, the big, the big, big box guys got in with the Sam's Club Walmarts, um, adding, you know, thousands of locations with both their own and with Murphy outside of their stores. And then Costco, you know, shortly thereafter, and really – even today one of the most impactful transitions has been them adding really super high volume locations outside of their, you know, their warehouse clubs. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's been a long transition to get here, but it's a, it's certainly a very different business now than it was, you know, for many, many decades when the industry started.
0: Yeah. And, and we had Dan Munford really digging into that trend for us. The the story we are here to tell though, is really one of margin, and volatility in the supply side the the, the supply of those hydrocarbons and, and in in time the supply of that power yeah. uh, so staying going back to that sort of the the pre-change environment you know what were the drivers in that kind of margin and volatility lens you know the the, the midstream piece what would the drivers for those producers to own their own value chains down to the pump
1: well initially it was the you know it was the only way you could guarantee a market for your product right so the as the industry developed you had to make sure that if you're investing even back then you know tens or hundreds of millions of dollars and sometimes you know up into the billions of dollars for a refinery that you better have a place to put the product and make sure it got to market and as you know before the industry really matured into a you know where you had a very mature spot market you had a cash market you had well, prior to that, it was simply a you know a rack supply business for those that had some independence. And then for most, you know you had what was called a dealer tank wagon model where even when the stores became independent themselves, the oil companies themselves still controlled distribution down to the to the store itself and delivered the fuel. So their motivation was to make sure they locked up their short and uh,
0: had a guaranteed market for their product just a couple of terms there because all this is going to be significant down the line in this conversation and also just to clarify you know i mean as much as possible this is kind of replicated across europe and north america and beyond as well right I mean, but the just the one term yep. there yep. so what do we mean by the the rack so the rack is the you know it's the physical terminal
1: distribution point right where you load the the large tanker trucks that bring the Full truckloads of fuel to the to the local retail gas station or convenience store. Right. So you'll see rack is a common term for it. It's a truck rack. It's the endpoint of primary distribution. So where the pipe, you know, you have refineries connected to pipelines, those pipelines connected to terminals, and then at the outlet of that terminal is a truck rack where that product eventually gets distributed, you know, to the point of consumption. Yeah.
0: And and those were all owned you know, each each producer would have a separate rack or were they sharing those facilities and then at this stage, still staying in kind of the you know, the nineteen eighties, w- was this the point at which kind of, you know, your, your additives got added for the marketing purposes and cleaning the engines and et cetera? Yeah. That
1: is the that is the place where you move from a fungible common spec, right, that is necessary to ship products through the pipelines, because the pipelines are in common most, most times. Um and it becomes, you know, a branded gasoline product with unique chemistry. That additive is added at the rack, right, For the, in most all cases. That's the other transition that has occurred in this same time frame is the whole supply chain has segmented and fragmented itself where it used to be the oil companies owned the pipelines, the oil companies owned the terminals, some of which they might share, but many of which were proprietary, right? So if you wanted to buy... BP product or Exxon product or Shell product you went to the BP terminal you went to the Shell terminal you went to the Exxon terminal well now far and away 90 plus percent of that distribution infrastructure is independent and owned for the most part well what we called MLPs for many years a few of those have converted to C corps now like Kinder Morgan you know Magellan Transmontane I mean all those all those assets some the pipelines but certainly from the from the terminal side all became sort of independent common carrier infrastructure versus dedicated to the to the proprietary oil company's production.
0: Okay. So staying on that specific element, what led in that context of margins, volatility, returns, you know, what led to the oil majors just saying, we'll sell this all we know, sell off our midstream, we'll sell this on, and this isn't a business we want to be in for the most part? In the battle for capital,
1: you know the risks and returns, so the, the market proved to be very efficient and effective at delivering those volumes, distributing them, running that infrastructure in most cases more cheaply than the oil companies could do themselves. There was efficiency and synergies generated by operating those systems as common carriers. So you know you didn't have to have five terminals in a market. you could maybe have two and everybody shared them. So the utilization rates go up. You turn your tanks faster. You turn your inventory faster. Everybody gets a little bit of savings. Right. And then the operator makes a return on having the capital in that physical infrastructure for their investors. So, you know, that model really started to completely take over in the 90s throughout the, the early 2000s. And, you know, it's largely you know completed now. There's it's not that some major producers don't have a few proprietary terminals left. They're out there. But of the 1,100 terminals across the U.S., you know, my guess would be 800 plus of them are common carrier terminals used by multiple producers and and many 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 customers.
0: How the um, who owns the oil the, the the gasoline as it flows from refinery to these terminals and then beyond? You know, did this bring in a whole new range of participants wanting to trade around that midstream activity? Indeed, it did, and
1: that's the other. You know, As we get to the volatility question and the, the impact these changes have had on pricing, volatility, supply reliability that have all become apparent now, that's when that really started to happen because now you could a, – a much larger group of participants in the marketplace could originate their barrels at the refinery gate or in the spot market in a large liquid market like you know Houston, San Francisco, New York Harbor or wherever – and directly transport that product through a common carrier pipeline into now a common carrier terminal. They didn't, they had none of that capital directly invested, right? So they didn't have to build a pipeline, they didn't have to build a terminal, they didn't have to build a refinery, and yet they could control the barrel from the point of refining through the primary distribution system and all the way down to offering that to the consumer market. So you had a, a massive injection of liquidity and participation that. You know, was orders of magnitude larger than than the oil companies had been themselves ever, right? So if you had, you know, we've consolidated down where you don't have Exxon and Mobile anymore, you have ExxonMobil, you don't have Chevron Texaco, you have Chevron, right? So all that's happened. But even if you go back to the early days when all those different oil companies were independent from each other, that's still a fraction of the number of participants that you have today, with all the trading houses, all many of the some of the marketers themselves some distributors and suppliers themselves. Um, so it's, you know, many orders of magnitude bigger now in terms of participation than than what you had when it was all, you know, a proprietary oil company structure.
0: Yeah, interesting. And at the same time, you obviously had the expansion of different derivatives available you played into this at the same time. And of course, you know, the, the 2000s was another period of volatility when lots of the trading houses and the banks were making lots of money. We'll, we'll put a pin in that particular comment. <laughs> you, you've also got, obviously, you alluded to it earlier. So this is the point, and I know you were quite instrumental in this for different reasons. Though they they they're not looking to participate in the midstream, in the trading, in the physical um, supply side, but you had these other participants come in as a rec, you know as a uh, the big box stores in Europe, you know. Supermarkets et cetera uh in the u s similar but also other participants as well, they come in they are not though they're i mean how are they getting their fuel at this point yeah, for the most part, as that occurred, so when the
1: the big box stores, whether they be the grocery stores or the warehouse clubs, came into the market, they were you know for the vast majority quote what we, what the industry referred to as unbranded, you know, so they didn't fly a major. Flag. They didn't have an oil company brand on their on their sites. They could buy the fuel from anybody because it was sold under their brand. But they, for the most part, didn't participate in primary distribution, but they would go to that rack we talked about and try to aggregate competition for their business at that point. Right. So all these as you had this rise in other participants, trading houses, distributors, independent suppliers, marketers, all of a sudden having their hands on barrels at a terminal ready to break rack would turn that into gallons that go in a truck and get to your store. Those companies really created tremendous competition at that point for their business, which was the fastest growing business in the industry, right? So most of the incremental gallons and market share was being aggregated by those new players. So there was intense competition to supply that business and, you know, they needed to develop and sort of one of the ways I got to know a lot of those players, they were customers of mine and my, we, we created a software platform that allowed those companies to do that, to, you know, originate at the rack, manage logistics and distribution, you know, handle third party carriers, get that product to their sites, manage the pricing, the taxes, all the regulatory compliance, and to, you know, physically supply themselves from the rack to the store, right? But again, that gave them access to the greatest point of liquidity in terms of competition, which at that point was certainly at the rack versus, you know, they might get two or three companies to quote them, you know, delivering that product to their actual store. They might get 30 companies competing for their business if they could get themselves to the to the rack that sells and, and offer a contract there.
0: And, and there's, there's loads to unpack that. It's fascinating. So first off, what did it mean for those big box retailers, et cetera, who aren't traditional participants in the oil value chain to get to the rack? Did that mean that they had to then team up with a distrib- you know with with a tanker company had their own fleets was is it purely a sort of a physical logistics they needed to achieve
1: yeah it it is physical logistics in the end most of the vast majority of them didn't need to invest in the trucking assets, the drivers the transportation the you know, there was enough liquidity in the and competition in the U.S. market, and this was very similar, not in all of Europe, but in parts of Europe. Certainly the U.K. operated this way, many parts of France, parts of Germany, where there was thousands of independent transportation companies that were happy to manage deliveries or, you know, the trucking for, you know, a Costco, a Walmart, an Albertsons, a Safeway. I mean, it was a big credit-worthy customer. They pay on time. It's a it's a noteworthy brand to have in your portfolio. So the again, the competition was intense for the transportation business. The competition was intense for the fuel supply business, and you know it really set those companies up to be disruptors, where they could come in and have a very significant cost advantage, you know, versus the traditional branded operator that was working on a you know a more proprietary model, much less competition for their business, and kind of locked in a, a structure. That was more, you know, more reflective of the 1980s than the 2000s, right? Um, so that created, you know, that created a lot of disruption in the retail business.
0: Yeah, because I mean, it, uh, there's your answer as to why always it seemed like the supermarkets and, you know, Walmart or whoever always significantly cheaper than your the local Shell station. I imagine at that point, then, so whenever we peg it 2007. You know the the oil majors are pretty glad they've got out of such a capital intensive business. They can their trading teams can till, still take advantage of the increased liquidity, just like the trading houses. There's lots of yep. opportunity there for trading activity, and overall, trading is doing what trading does, which is make a market more efficient. Prices go down, and you know you've got the the end customer benefiting from from lower lower fuel costs.
1: Right. And it, and it it was a highly it was the most, clearly the most efficient market in the world, in the U.S. and like I said, parts of Europe were very close as well. So it's you know there's a consumer benefit. The the supply chain proved to be incredibly efficient at delivering ever greater volumes every year at lower and lower costs in terms of the you know the friction along the way for the transportation costs, for the transactional costs, for the the risk management costs, and that that tremendous injection of liquidity lowered everyone's price, right? So and then that obviously created different forms of competition in the market and it's and it's persisted largely till now for the most part in that form you know i think part of what we you know can talk about going forward is that's all looking like it might change yet again because that setup while it's super efficient and cost effective is sort of based on the market that is going to be balanced right and perhaps even a bit short right so You don't worry about controlling every one of those aspects. So if you have a multi-billion dollar refinery, but you know the market is going to be there for you every day for you to clear the refinery, place your barrels highly efficiently, again, without controlling your without having all the capex of your own pipes, your own terminals, your own stores. You know, that's a pretty attractive place to live and it makes you more capital efficient. But it is dependent on the fact that you have to believe that that market's going to be there every day. Right. And that the market isn't going to get long and create a situation where you have uncertainty about placing your barrels and knowing that you can clear your big capital investment at a very good price, that again is super efficient in the marketplace in terms of creating that market clearing price every day. And I think that's, that's what's starting to change now is it hasn't physically changed quite yet, although we can talk about some of the changes in volatility that happened during COVID and demand destruction that gave us, I think a bit of a preview of that. But as you think about the transition To EVs, the demand destruction that's potentially coming from that, at what pace that might proceed, all of a sudden your fundamental premise of the marketplace starts to look quite different Mm. because now you don't know if that market's going to be there every day. You don't know if it's going to be big enough to clear all the product that's being produced. And if it isn't, what do you do differently then to make sure, you know, it's sort of a back to the future model where all of a sudden, I might need to be thinking more like I did in the 70s or 60s or the 80s even than I did in 2022 because, you know, if I, if you've, and you can, there's dozens of different forecasts on this from Bloomberg, New Energy Finance is probably the most, uh, you know, optimistic to the, you know, I think the more accurate models from the, you know, BP Statistical Review or the, or the Fuels Institute on, you know, adoption rates for EV. They all vary in terms of the shape of the curve, but they don't vary in the direction of the curve, which yeah. is down for demand. Right. If you're if you're thinking about, you know, the, your market as a as a producer, you know, in all parts of this, as the producer, as the retailer, as the transporter, as the distributor, all of a sudden, you you know, you have to contemplate going forward in a market that is shrinking every year. And how is how is the capacity going to be rationalized out of the industry as that? demand destruction and and decline occurs and obviously if you don't want to be the one rationalized you have to have a different strategy to make sure that you now secure your market yeah because just the general market is no longer kind of guaranteed to absorb everything you could make
0: the hc insider podcast is brought to you by hc group a retained search intelligence and advisory firm focused solely on the global energy and commodity sector with six locations across Asia, Europe and the Americas, and over 50 consultants. To find out more, go to our website, hcgroup.global. There, you can also sign up for our HC Insider content for more interviews and white papers on relevant trends and talent impacts in the commodities world. I mean, a basic route, right? This is sort of the divergence of a demand story and a divergence of a supply story. Absolutely. You know, as Paul Horsenall recently said, you've got sort of, you can still see growing demand, but actually in that entire environment you're describing, what's not going to happen is capital flowing in to make those markets very efficient. And as soon as your sort of perception even of uh, the loss of efficiency Suddenly, you're facing a world where, yeah, the biggest thing you face is the oil not flowing, and you're in real trouble, right? So, so, but the and I completely get that because one of the the artifacts of the last decade post the financial crisis, where was that? Suddenly, we started to see, and you were part of this, so I want to get your opinion on sort of why you think this was the major sort of fuel retailers who traditionally, you know, had relied on that efficient service to not. Have their own production, midstream, etc. Build out trading teams. It started with Love and Musket. Um, at least in just talking North yep. America here, but you've seen Parkland, you've seen Pilot Flying J, and then you started to see some of the big, bo- the big convenience stores also doing likewise. That 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 sort of started pre-COVID and really started prior to EV adoption really taking pace. Was that in their minds when they started to do that what why why start to build out a trading capability in such an in when you already had kind of the low prices that you wanted? Well, I think there was a couple
1: of things I do think the the low cost of capital environment certainly supported that, right? because all the working capital investment it takes to participate in the primary market, you know the bulk barrel market versus the gallon market at the rack as an example. Is pretty substantial. Right. But when money's free or, you know, nearly free with interest rates very, very, very low and capital is very, very, you know, available, the math changed a bit. Right. So the relative rates of return on supplying yourself all of a sudden became pretty attractive, you know, because there is a margin pool to supply the market. So there's, you know, to buy the barrel to origin, ship it on the pipe, hedge it, schedule it. Get it to the terminal, inventory to the terminal, additize it, get it into a truck. I mean, that all operates on a margin, because if it didn't, people wouldn't do it. And all of a sudden, the the ability to get that margin in your own in your own business as a retailer became very interesting and attractive because for you know the technology available to do that got better. The, there was a greater supply of of people, you know, just the human capital side of this trading and supply and distribution business had been around now for, you know, 10 or 20 years. So there was there was people who knew how to do it that could be assembled into a team. So you could hire the right people, you could deploy the right technology, you could establish your processes. And then most importantly, you could finance the whole affair at a very, very, very low cost because your working capital was nearly free. And so that that stimulated a lot of development. As you say, I think, you know, the work that you know, guys like Brad Jenkins at, at Musket in the early days, and he's, you know, since moved on to pilot and helped build out their business, you know, guys like that who had grown up as that whole business was created, all of a sudden had an opportunity to build teams and create tremendous value for for retail operators that had never had access to that margin pool before, and who now controlled the biggest portion of the shorts in the market, you know, at their stores with their own customers. So you have seen that evolve from the early phases with kind of the truck stop guys on diesel. Now you've got, you know, racetrack has a very sophisticated supply group. Quick Trip has a tremendously uh, efficient, sophisticated supply function that, you know, is in all kinds of pipelines and terminals. You had Wawa who went into Florida, which is a waterborne market, you know, charter, and I think own their own, you know, barges and vessels to supply themselves. So tremendous level of sophistication that, You wouldn't, you know, if you roll back 20 years, there wasn't any retailers doing that kind of work. But I think it was a combination of available talent, um, available technology, good liquidity. So you could get in and out of markets was really getting hurt as you as you learned the markets um, and very low cost of capital to do so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And just talking to the talent side. um, So firstly, what you're saying is that this actually sort of predates the current kind of volatility and disruption that we're seeing as a result of that combination of EV adoption, energy transition, et cetera. But so driven by low cost of capital, obviously the talent whilst you know, the talent has always been relatively scarce, but you had, right. you know, this we're talking sort of 2012, for example, most of the banks were fully out of physical. No were a major sink of yep. physical talent who have been very active in these markets that you've been mentioning, you know, colonial, et cetera. And then also you saw a couple of the trading houses, Noble, for example. I think about the talent sat there at Pilot. Many of you know, have their, their roots there as well. Um, so there was the talent available because it was actually, you know, we look back now and we realize that period of sort of 12 to 18 was a pretty tough period, low volatility. You know, there weren't many organizations rapidly expanding in the, in the trading space. Yes. So that was, you know, the, the one, the talent that had been grown up and developed as this
1: new class of participants, you know, scaled both at the banks, at proprietary trading houses, you know, all of that. Because, that, you know, if you if you roll back to that again, if you go back to the 80s and 90s, none of that existed. Right. I mean, there was, you know, yeah Jay Aaron came about as sort of the early days and, you know, the Morgans were involved. But I mean, there was a few, but there was it wasn't prolific. Right. And. If you had wanted to do this as a as a retailer or a truck stop chain or a, a big C store chain, the only place you could go hire people was you had to go to BP, Exxon, Shell, you know, ConocoPhillips. I mean, they're marathon. I mean, there was a handful. Right. But there wasn't dozens of places where you could find well-developed talent that had been at it for a decade, understood the markets exceptionally well. And as you said, during that period where those where those players started to back out of the market a bit, certainly the banks did in a big way you had a lot of these teams looking for a home and the there was a few opportunities i mean a few of the majors and big refiners you know did scale up a little bit to fill some of that gap but a lot of it fell to the actual end users and you know now you had the chains themselves on the retail side start to directly operate those trading you know they all many of them that have done it have effectively built out their own trading and supply function with their own trading floors many of them in Houston or in major you know energy centers and sort of fill that role that the banks you know after the financial crisis and in the, and then the you know evaporation of volatility where they were making money, largely exited yeah. or cut back dramatically
0: plus as you say, low interest rates, and I'm excited to note that we're going to have Edward Chancellor, author of the Price of Time on the podcast in a in a few weeks, who uh, I think has played an instrumental role at least in my thinking of understanding how the price of money has had such a consequential impact on all of them so then you've got so okay so so this is kind of as I said independent of kind of the the world we're in today it's it's an opportunity um it's it's, it's vastly successful for all of those organizations and similar efforts in Europe as well and then you've you you've spoken to it already you have suddenly this thing kind of becomes a bit more existential and you have a effectively if we if we pronosticate rightly a degrading system a degrading midstream as the lack of capital the lack of investment in a more uncertain environment starts to happen and suddenly these organizations need to be able to reach further up the value chain to ensure supply and, and therefore that's another big driver that's getting other fuel retailers into this space and then I assume at the same time the volatility's increased so there's a lot more margin to capture are those two statements roughly correct?
1: Yeah, I think that I think it's directionally correct for sure. I mean, it, the it did, st- you know, what started out initially certainly as an, just an economic opportunity to integrate more margin into the business, I think has started to play in in a much bigger role in terms of supply reliability, right? Because again, you used to have product was kind of all but guaranteed at the rack, right? So you never really worried. You might not get the best deal every day, but you didn't worry about not having product, right? And running yourself out. And you know, we've had several instances over the last you know five years, certainly, you know we had the colonial pipeline go out with a you know, a significant uh, crisis. We had hurricanes knock out major supply bases, basins you know for, for extended periods of time. And just on a day-to-day basis, the reliability of knowing that there's more than enough barrels to take care of everybody in the market has certainly declined substantially. So it doesn't take many instances of a retailer having to turn customers away and not have any product for them to get significantly serious about taking control of that situation and making, making sure they can supply themselves. And that's, you know, that wasn't a big part of the initial entry of these firms into the business, but it's become a more and more important uh, element of why they're doing it, how they value it, how they staff it, how they fund it. It's not just chasing the extra margin. Now it's, it's controlling and guaranteeing, Uh, to a greater certainty, your reliability of what you're supplying yourself.
0: Interesting. Uh, Just to understand that, so that we're talking sort of operational risk here. Obviously, cyber attacks is a technological advancement and an increasingly uncertain geopolitical environment. Great power competition has risen and so forth. But, you, you know, there's also the sort of the environmental risk there. Is that, are we seeing a real impact on, a growing impact on infrastructure around the world associated with this that is actually driving this need for, to to capture supply? I It's an indirect impact, but it's very, very
1: real, right? Because it's, you know, people don't invest on current reality. They invest largely against expectations, right? And that's, you know, you don't see the capital flows into midstream. You don't see... I'm not saying that infrastructure isn't being maintained at a safe standard. I mean, I think our industry does a tremendous job at that, but it's not, you're not seeing investment much beyond that, right? So there's no incremental capacity. There's no new infrastructure. There's, you know, and things are pretty brittle. And so, you know, you have increased outages on terminals, pipelines, tankage, racks, and that induces, you know, substantial volatility in a market that has operated for decades with virtually guaranteed reliability and you know that's driving a change in behavior on on you know throughout the supply chain but certainly retailers who have had to turn customers away and not have product to supply them you know it doesn't take many hours or days for the public to become very very distressed if they can't find gasoline at virtually every pump they pull up to right like it has a very dramatic social impact i mean we you know prices do as well as we've seen in the last you know year or so as as products cleared five dollars a gallon but the only thing far greater disruption than that is not having it at all right and so that generates tremendous interest and stimulates you know a lot of demand for control and making sure that these retailers can have supply no matter what
0: yeah it's it's fascinating isn't it because it's kind of the it's very much at the leading edge of the impacts of energy transition in that sense of uh, an expected future lowering of demand lack of investment the impacts of that and also the immediacy of this this is this is how most people most of the time interact with the hydrocarbon market and it's such a crucial element of daily life as you say it's kind of like the bins not being collected you know if, if people show up at the pump and there's no gas things start going yeah. you know bad pretty quickly right both for politicians as well as for the local society Is this what? What is the outcome of this? You've got. I mean, if you're an executive at whichever fuel retailer it is, the the map has changed substantially in the last couple of years, right? (laughs) You you either have a trading capability, a supply and origination capacity, or you don't. And if you do, you know that's either making a lot of money for you, but it's suddenly the risks inherent, the cash, the capital requirements have gone up. And the volatility is enormous, right? So right. so what are the sort of the various decision points you're faced in that seat, which you've sat in?
1: Yeah, I think, well, I mean, it is, you know, it's a challenge for, for many retailers that haven't taken these steps yet. You know, it's a dramatic change in the business, certainly for the public entities that have to, you know, deal with public disclosures of, you know, their hedge positions, their derivative positions, and, and sort of all the, you know, that does impart volatility into a business that is, partially being valued for the fact that it isn't volatile, right? So, you know, do you, are you willing to inject a degree of volatility? You know, while it may make you more money and in many, most cases will make you more profit over the course of the year, it could induce volatility amongst your quarters throughout the year, right? And how do you explain that to your investors? How do you, how do you deal with uh, shareholders who partially or maybe even primarily invested in your, in your shares because they were reliable, rateable, predictable earnings every quarter, which retail has proven to be by and large. So there's there's those concerns. There's certainly now with the, a real rise in the risk-free rate of return, right? So all of a sudden, all the working capital to do this is no longer free. And then, as you mentioned, the the backwardation you know, that's been in the market, certainly this in 22, could be particularly ruinous if you had, you know, lots of volumes, uh, hedged in those front months. So, you know, it it really has become a lot more volatile and now a lot more expensive at the same time it looks like it's a lot more necessary, right? So, so I just think the importance of the question if you're facing that as a as a large retail chain, it, it you know, it became more complicated, more volatile and more expensive at the same time it looks to be much more necessary. So that is that's putting, you know, a lot of pressure on those decision points for sure. And then the other dynamic that's in some ways cutting the other way is that now that the market is faced with a decline and the producers and the refiners are now saying, well, maybe I don't have a guaranteed market every day. You're seeing them come back into the downstream market and reinvest in some cases, maybe even just a year or two after they finished divesting. So, you know, we've seen we've seen both BP and Shell you know, come back into the u s market at retail to to own and operate and run their own c stores after watching them for twenty years, divest all of that so you've got a yet another you know variable coming in that is dramatically different than what the retailers have typically faced for the last couple of decades.
0: yeah, it's always this twin balancing element of the opportunity in the margin, driven by volatility driven driven by efficiency which is as you say both of those are well volto's is going up and efficiency is going down but then also that need to secure supply or the short right and actually the 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 spice has to flow and kind of all of those dials at the moment look like whoever wherever you're participating on either end of that value chain you've got to somehow at least have a plan if not participate and we have seen we should say other large-scale retailers Start to look at what Parkland Pilot and Musket and others have done, get in the space, right? Yep. Precisely for and some reasons. through
1: partnership. Yep. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, you know, some
1: have solved the equation by saying, well, I don't want to directly inject that volatility into my earnings. I don't want to, I don't, I might not necessarily want to bear the entire burden of all the working capital and systems and technology and staff that it takes to build out this capability. But I have a big short that is certainly valued in the marketplace by those that do that work. And can I partner with them and get a significant portion of that value for my business through partnership versus direct operations, which is, you know, I think what you saw with the, uh, circle K musket partnership, right. Where, you know, circle K has always had a very sophisticated procurement organization around fuel supply and managed a lot of their kind of secondary distribution for themselves, but had hadn't hadn't largely entered the primary market and the pipeline market and the terminals for many of those reasons, and probably many others that I, I wouldn't be privy to, but has found a way to solve that equation very creatively and you know with a very, very strong partner that's been at this as long as kind of any of these players. So I think you might see that as a trend develop where faced with that, uh, the need for this capability and the the importance of Ensuring your customers and your operations, and and certainly your investors, that you've got reliability baked into your supply plan, which is, I think, being asked of all supply chains across the world, not just ours. That you've, you know, you've made deliberate choices and bolstered your capability to ensure that reliability, and you're also position yourself to get economic benefit out of that, if not all of the economic benefit, because you are sharing that with someone that is taking on those other tasks and burdens. You know, that could be a very a very efficient way to answer
0: that. Yeah. Given we're only sort of halfway through uh, our planned discussion, I think we're, we're going to we'll wrap up our first episode just staying on hydrocarbons. And then we're going to talk about the sure. energy transition, I think, in a part two. So the listeners will have to excuse us and, and come back the, the following week. But th- there's a few questions that I have. Firstly is, so all of this makes sense, I guess, t- to this moment. One of the big dynamics that has changed, of course, is that capital is no longer essentially free. You know, have we started seeing that have an impact yet? How's that going to play into at least the sort of the marginal players that, you know, perhaps haven't got such the strategic, the imperative to be securing their supply? They're just simply capturing volatility. Yeah, it, it has already made a big
1: impact. It's certainly, and it, And the withdrawal of that liquidity has accentuated the the volatility. And it's not not just the rise in interest rates. So this in 22 is kind of a perfect storm to really pressure this part of the system because you had a dramatic rise in the flat price. So all of a sudden, at any cost of interest, you were investing twice as much capital to move the same amount of barrels. Right. So all of a sudden that started to pair back capacity and, and liquidity because people just said, well, I only have a set amount of capital to do this activity with, you know, here's my capital allocation from the company or the corporation. I've got to make do with this amount of capital. So now I can only ship half the batches I used to ship, or I can only carry half the inventory I used to carry and the rest I've got to go to market and sort of find a rack supplier to to supply me at the rack where You know, prior to that, I would have supplied myself more of my own barrels, but now I'm capital constrained. And, you know, when the prices get to those levels, you know, you had that reduced capacity for many. At the same time, even that same capital allocation became much more expensive in terms of cost of interest and time value money. And then on top of that, you had the backwardation, you know, degrading the value of the inventory you actually had at the same time. So there was tremendous pressures to basically run the system on no inventory <laughs> and we all know that what happens when that happens which is disruptions are more frequent volatility increases reliability goes down and you had tremendous disruptions throughout 22 because of all those reasons
0: is is that why my local shamrock you know i, get, I assume a smaller player in this world is consistently out of 93 octane gas, right? Is is that ultimately a function of that?
1: Yeah, premium has been hard to find, certainly in short supply, you know, and and to add to the mix, you know, we had a dramatic shortage of transportation. I mean, there was a period last summer where I I think the figure was, you know, 15 to 18% of the sea stores across the Rockies, that part of America were out of product. And it wasn't, that there wasn't product at the rack, there was simply not enough trucks to deliver the product because we had been a substantial driver shortage. And so, you know, this, the number of variables coming at these operators certainly became more acute and more, uh, and more intense in, in 22 as a consequence of, you know, again, the dramatic rise in the flat price, the dramatic increase in the cost of the capital and the dramatic change in the shape of the futures curve where, it
0: really costs you a lot of money to hold inventory, and the risks therefore inherently have gone up as well with that increase in volatility and the increase in prices. The amount you can lose on any given percentage loss has—I mean—has this, in your sense, you know, has this sort of only fueled the the expectation of the opportunity there might be there for those that have these trading capabilities. Or is it? You know, are we suddenly realizing that there's this has introduced a hell of a lot of risk into the system alongside securing supply? I mean, I'm trying to tease apart. Yeah, I, I of... think
1: the answer is both, Paul. I think that for those that have mastered the situation, who have been, you know, who have the, who have their own liquid, in other words, they have the throughput in their own short to turn inventories extremely rapidly. They've got the sophistication in their risk management systems to to. To optimize their hedging around this 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 backwardation, they've got the expert scheduling to manage you know to run leaner and yet not run themselves out. Those operators have made far more money off of this situation than they would have without it, right? So that's one that's the winners. And on the other hand, you've got some losers who you know maybe entered later. They didn't have quite the scale or the liquidity or the systems or the controls in place who really struggled with that amount of volatility being injected all at one time. So it has created some winners and losers across the sector, for sure.
0: Okay, fantastic. Well, that takes us right up to the present day, and I think teases nicely for sort of looking at the next decade in the next episode. Let, me, let us stop there, Doug, and I want to thank you very much for your time, and uh, it's been a fascinating story so far. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support the show, please give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. To find out more about HC Insider and HC Group, a search and advisory firm dedicated to the commodity markets, visit our website at www.hcgroup.global. There you can find out more about our services and our offices around the world. There you can also find more content from interviews to insight pieces to more podcasts focused on the commodity value chains. Thanks again for listening.